The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 28, The Hour of the Dragon, by Robert E. Howard. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This show is all about the fantasy stories that inspired Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax included a list of books and stories to be inspirational reading to those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. But you don't have to travel all around the world like you're hunting down some ancient artifact or something, oh no. We here at the Appendix N Podcast have collected these stories for you, and we talk about them while there is a microphone conveniently nearby. Every episode of Appendix N will feature a different story or collection of stories. Together with my co-host Jeff Wickstrom and my guests, we lay bare the dusty secrets of these forgotten tomes and speculate how they may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you are reading along with us and would like to send us your comments, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Welcome back, Jeff. Aloha. And Happy to be here. Also joining me is our Conan the Barbarian expert, Peter Foxhoven. Uh, nice to be back, guys. Thank you for having me. And for the first time on our show is special guest star, Robert Wolf. Welcome, Robert. Good to be here. Robert, since this is your first time on the show, why don't you tell the listeners, uh, what kind of nerd are you? I am a very much a tabletop role-playing game nerd, and as much sword and sorcery fiction as I can get a hold of. I've been a Robert Howard fan for a while, Tolkien as well, and uh, possibly my biggest nerd cred to brag about is I was involved in Jeff Wickstrom's first third-end D&D game years ago. And he played a barbarian named Tor. Torg. How did that go? It went exceptionally well. What, what? I re- I remember it as being kind of a train wreck. But. <laughs> what level did you did you make it to? Well, it kind of got hand waved towards the end because we wanted to stress test the system. But I think we we made it to we made it to twelfth, honestly. Yeah, it was definitely into the double digits. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. So is this is this your first time reading the Hour of the Dragon, or or is this this an old favorite for you? This is about my third time reading it. I read it the first time I picked up The Bloody Crown of Conan when they published it, and then I went through it a couple of times for this podcast. What What about you, Jeff? This was my first time reading it, uh, and I, I want to, uh, once, we've, we, once we're diving into this, I have a little, uh, like a special feature that I want to, uh, to bring to the fore about Hour of the Dragon. Awesome. And, and Peter, I assume you've, you've read this novel many, many times. Yeah, actually, back when I still taught reading to sixth graders, I uh, had a student last year that uh, did this for his uh, single novel unit presentation. So he seemed to like it, which was cool. Awesome. Yeah, he was a cool kid. All right. Maybe, There's maybe, a lot to like. 
maybe he would like to be on the podcast sometime. Uh, if I like ever run into him again, I don't <laughs> teach in that district anymore. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how uh, how uh, parental permission works in the in the online sphere. I might, I might. I imagine run, it's sticky. Might run into some legal issues. All right, the the hour of the dragon is, I believe, considered Robert E. Howard's only full length Conan the Barbarian novel. It was published December th- uh, 1935 through April 1936 in, of course, Weird Tales. It was eventually published by Gnome Press in hardcover in 1950, and it was retitled Conan the Conqueror, and it uh, retained that title until 1977 when publishers began using the original title again. Okay, so what did people think of this of this story? Peter, let's let's start with you since you're our, our expert. Okay. Well, I have a huge um, Conan the Conqueror Hour of the Dragon bias. So my first um, uh, exposure to this was in those old Ace paperbacks, um, which were those, you know, the, the some of it was the original Robert E. Howard stuff, and then some of it was the Elsbrock DeCamp, Lynn Carter pastiche work. Oh, and so that's where I first got my hands on this. You're starting to sound like a Cylon. Your 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 voice was was getting kind of distorted there. Hey, am I, are we getting a little bit better now? Or yeah, yes, better, yes, yeah. yes. So start from the from the beginning. Hello. I can hear you. Yes. Peter, guys, I can hear you. Peter, you sound fine. I believe we've lost Peter. I believe this podcast has been cursed by the heart of Ahriman. Robert, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this story? Uh, I'm I like it a lot because of the lyricism, and it's it's a it's one that I have trouble not reading out loud. Reading it on a plane was was a little bit disheartening because I couldn't start just, just speaking it. the The language and it flows very well. It's very descriptive, but from a narrative standpoint, it kind of feels like Conan just kind of blunders from coincidence to coincidence. Mm-hmm. And and I, th- I think I mentioned in some of the some of the chat we were having beforehand, a lot of it feels like the heart of Araman is driving the story more than any of the actual characters in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I thought the novel started pretty strong. I thought it it ended pretty strong. I thought the the middle seemed like like it it was a bunch of short stories that maybe Howard was working on for other things that sort of just got strung together? Well, it read to me sort of like the novelization of a TV, uh, like, prestige series, a season of a series. Mm-hmm. You have all of these discrete episodes, um, and there's, a, there's an overarching narrative that sometimes gets advanced a lot, sometimes gets advanced a little bit in any given chapter. It, it it reminded me of have 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 you ever seen those uh, Looney Tunes movies where they where they took a bunch of classic Looney Tunes cartoons and 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 put some original animation between them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Yeah, with, with with a with a treasure cave and a genie on either end. There was a Heathcliff movie that was just Heathcliff telling his extremely bored nephews stories about his life, which each of which was exactly twenty two minutes long. <laughs> So anyways, all right. So yeah, I, I, I thought this story started pretty s- 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 strongly. I mean, I, I, 
I I thought this presentation of King Conan in the in the beginning, like this this was the first time since um, Phoenix on the Sword that that I've seen Conan really speak like that Conan who was who Peter told us was supposed to be Cull. Like he was he was speaking eloquently. He wasn't saying he he wasn't talking like his his bar- barbarian self. Well, this is the Conan that I, the Conan novice, was expecting when I first started reading Robert E. Howard. This is, this is Conan, the unstoppable killing machine who has been everywhere and seen everything. This is Conan at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. And, and I, don't, I don't know how much Peter would have gotten into this, um, but yeah, I've, I've, read, I've read pretty closely back through at least all the supporting material in, the, in these nice Del Rey versions. And some of the some of the discussion on the backup of, of how this was written that he originally put it together for a UK publisher, uh, someone over in in the United kingdom to publish and introduce his work over there. And I very much get the feel that this is a travelogue. This is him showcasing all the ideas of Conan for a new market. Yeah. It's, it is a sort of uh, potted geography of the uh, Hyborian age. You have, all of these different places that Conan goes to, there's a much broader geographic sweep than you see in, I think, any of his other uh, adventures. I, I, I just, just want to pause for a moment. Uh, Peter seems to be back online. Peter, yeah, can, can, so, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Really sorry about that. I, the town I live in is terrible. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> like Stuff, we have the worst, yeah. worst infrastructure. Stuff happens, obviously. We, we, we said you were cursed by the, by the heart of Araman. You know what? As if a priest of Set has it, I'm sure they're gunning for me because I have done nothing to endear myself to those guys. <laughs> so the, the 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 story is called Hour of the Dragon. Do we ever find out what the dragon is? Yes, the dragon is the standard of Namidia. So whereas like Aquilonia boasts the lion as its standard, um, and then uh, I forget what they said Pointain was. Um, but I believe it was also like a large cat. N- uh, Namidia's standard is a, is a large red lion, and so that's what they're talking. The hour of the of the dragon is an allusion to the moment when the country of Namidia becomes powerful in the West. I see. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think you meant uh, Aquilonia is a is a is a lion. Yeah, Aquilonia is a lion, but Pointain is a large uh, uh, cat too. I just can't remember which kind. That- Poitain read to me like like Spain. Yeah, they're supposed to be sort of like Mediterranean France or like yeah or Spain that that same like kind of high chivalry concept like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's 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 get into a discussion of of the plot. Um, before we do that, before we do that, can I do my thing? Absolutely, do your thing. Okay, this is my thing. This is a list of that I have I have compiled of the top 11 lines from Hour of the Dragon. Take it away, Jeff. All right. Number one, it was not strange that a passionate young beauty should be risking her life to aid him. Such things had happened often enough in his life. (laughs) That's, That's certainly true, yes. Number two, number two, he caught only glimpses of that brief, 
fiendish fight. Saw men swaying, locked in battle and streaming blood. Saw one Kaitan, fairly hacked to pieces, yet still on his feet and dealing death, when Thuthamese smote him on the breast with his open, empty hand, and he dropped dead, though naked steel had not been enough to destroy his uncanny vitality. Those, those guys were, were pretty awesome. They were, they were high-level monks, is what they were. Yes, they were. They were. They, they were simultaneously awesome and disappointing because they because once they once they finally showed up, they they got dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, there's you only had so much time. But you've, uh, you've got nine more lines. Go. Yeah, number three. Number three. This is a good one. You war against more than swords, answered Zalutun. Was it a mortal sword that felled you in your tent before the fight? Nay, it was a child of the dark, a waif of outer space, whose fingers were afire with the frozen coldness of the black gulfs, which froze the blood in your veins and the marrow of your thews. Coldness so cold, it burned your flesh like white-hot iron. Really, I just like the end of that coldness so cold it burns your flesh. But you know, you gotta gotta build up to that. Freezer burn, yeah. Well, that's what happens when they stick a biaki on you. Oh, number four. Number four, this is um, Zenobia talking. He has never glanced at me and probably never will. I am less than one of the dogs that gnaw the bones in his banquet hall, but I am no painted toy. I am flesh and blood. I breathe hate, fear, rejoice, and love, and I have loved you, King Conan, ever since I saw you riding at the head of your knights along the streets of Belveris when you visited King Nemed years ago. My heart tugged at its strings to leap from my bosom and fall in the dust of the street under your horse's hooves. This is a woman, he has just met this woman and this is how she's talking <laughs> yeah we should we we will probably talk about Z- Z- Zenobia soon <laughs> well number five is his response he caught her up in his iron arms crushed her slim vibrant figure to him and kissed her fiercely on eyes cheeks throat and lips until she lay panting in his embrace gusty and tempestuous as a storm wind even his lovemaking was violent yeah that's that's basically what Conan does he crushes See, that's why I say that this, this this story, this Conan, uh, this version of Conan is the Conan that is the Conan of popular culture. This is the Conan I was expecting to see. The Conan whose lovemaking is violent. <sighs> Number six. It was a tall man in Morian and gray chainmail, one of the adventurers, a class of warriors particular to Nemedia, men who had not attained to the wealth and position of knighthood or had fallen from that estate, hard-bitten fighters dedicating their lives to war and adventure. Yeah, I, I, I liked this part because I thought we were about to, to get like an amazing fight and then Conan stabs the dude in the neck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a couple of times. Oh, number seven. This is a short one. I'll buy your ship, began Conan, before he remembered that he was a penniless wanderer. <laughs> How many times did we try that in a game? That's a good bluff check there. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the cabin, he brought forth a suit of Aquilonian ring mail, which Hadrathus had procured for him and his sword. See, according to Robert E. Howard, ring mail actually existed. Conan wore it at one point. Good. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> Through his physical revulsion ran the sense of a shattered dream of man's idolatry. Its glittering gold proved slime and cosmic filth. A wave of futility slept over him, a dim fear of the falseness of all men's dreams and idolatries. Conan is a, is a nihilist. He believes in nothing. 
What what part? I, I I remember that part. Where where? What part is 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 that from? That's the uh, discussion of the vampire queen. Oh the, the yes, I forgot about who her. Just happens to just happens to be there. Just you know, she shows up, says hi. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Conan looked down into the open waste where wafted that sickening, abominable odor. He knew it of old. It was the body scent of the oarsmen chained to their benches. They were all Negroes, 40 men on each side, each confined by a chain locked about his waist, with the other end welded to a heavy ring set deep in the solid runway beam that ran beneath the benches from stem to stem. The life of a slave aboard an Argosian galley was a hell unfathomable. Yes, it was. He's bombastic about everything. His life was a series of feasts and wild debauches. Jeff, he filled his palace with the fairest girls of the kingdom, willing or unwilling. He blasphemed the gods and sprawled drunken on the floor of the banquet hall, wearing the golden crown and staining his royal purple robes with the wine he spilled. I want that to be my epitaph. <laughs> I want them to say that at my funeral. <laughs> That's that hilarious. Conan he filled his good, palace yeah. with the fairest girls of the kingdom, willing or unwilling. He blasphemed the <laughs> gods and sprawled drunken on the floor of the banquet hall, wearing the golden crown and staining his royal purple robes with the wine he spilled. Now that's that's someone describing um, one of the usurpers, I think. Yeah, uh, hilarious. Yes. Yeah, or or it's Nixon's America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I wasn't alive for Nixon's America, so I couldn't I couldn't really say. Well, that's a whirlwind tour of the uh, stylistic tour de force that is the Hour of the Dragon. Yeah, I mean Howard Howard is a terrific writer in terms of of how he crafts his his prose like even even when the plot is kind of boring his his words are still fun to read which which is not something i can say about uh a lot of the other authors that we have 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 read uh but let, let's let's get into to the plot um you know what let's let's first talk about our villain zaltatune I mean, he's a pretty scary guy. He's a he's an ancient uh, lich wizard, necromancer guy. He's he's got a powerful artifact. Um, we were we were drawing parallels to uh, the the One Ring in in our discussion before uh, re- recording. So uh, who who wants to talk to talk about uh, Zaltitude and just how how awesome he is? Robert, go. I think the thing that struck me most about Zaltotin, and one of the quotes about it was, they said his power is drawn from the Black Gulf. And then you also had that wonderful bit that Jeff referenced, where he summoned a child of the dark, a waif of outer space, to go after Conan. So Zaltotin is very much this just sorcerer of the outer realms. Mm-hmm. And and you almost get this feeling of, of where, where Howard does so much about, you know, the, the barbarians and being you know, fighting against civilization, you almost get the idea that the heart of Araman is the light of civilization. And this guy is the darkness of elder days. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a greater struggle. And, you know, for an undead sorcerer King, he's, he's tops. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so weird how, how Howard uses the term uh, outer space, which, which is like a, almost a science fictiony term in this, fantasy story he he could have just said that that he was a demon summoned from from the the abyss but but using using outer space just makes it so much more weird and and 
fantastic. Well, I and, feel like I feel like there wasn't such a distinction between fantasy and science fiction once upon a time. Exactly. It reminds me a lot of what you see in early D&D with again, you know, they talk about the heart of Araman as as coming from some far universe of flaming light mm-hmm. and it being a cosmic source turned against him. And it reminds me of, you know, Blackmore and and Talislanta and all these settings where the source of magic is is a starship that crash landed or a mm-hmm. nuclear reactor or something. I think I think ever since oh, Star, yeah. Star Wars we've been we've been moving back in that in that direction where where sci-fi and and fantasy are are merged. Peter, what what were you going to say? Oh, uh, I thought immediately when he was talking about the nuclear reactor, the principalities of Glantry, right? Wasn't that their big shtick in the old B- BCMI is that they, uh, um, the Beagle Star, right? it was, yeah, it was, it was the, built, yeah, the radiance. Yeah. It, which was essentially like a nuclear reactor. Oh, but I the thing about, about that. Oh, it's, it's pretty cool of the Glazeteers. It's like my favorite one. Glantry's doomed. That's the short of it. Oh yeah, oh, all magic. All magic is doomed, according to that, as I recall. That must be yeah. in, in yeah. Mistara, because it it doesn't sound like like Greyhawk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Mistara. It it yep, it's Mistara. Go me. It's one of like to me like the best points of Mistara. But you know when you look at the the exactly what the uh, Jeff and Robert were saying is that when you, especially when you look at Appendix N literature, that divide between science fiction and fantasy is nearly non-existent. And really, while we think of Expedition Expedition to the Barrier Peaks as being that module that codified, I mean, most people would say like that's like where they input science fiction elements into D and D more than anything. I feel like that's the moment where they explicitly said no more science fiction in D and D. Because by putting it as the only way to get this stuff is to be on this ship and it's this crash-landed ship, it kind of makes it so this high technology doesn't really exist elsewhere in campaign worlds, that it's a fundamentally outside thing. Of course, that gets undermined by the existence of like Spelljammer and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, well, but, temp- uh, Temple of the Frog, the first uh, D&D adventure, was um, a dungeon crawl where the bad guys had power suits and were aliens in contact with an alien ship that was in orbit. Um, there was this this pulling away from uh, from science fiction, this uh, sort of of uh, circumscribing Dungeons and Dragons to include only some elements of fantasy that I think uh, I think this speaks to. And you you, uh, you know it almost seems to to go along with with the, the growing popularity of Tolkien in America that you you get the point where you really have to have this this fantastic background separate from from the sci fi. Yeah, and but, I think it's oh, sorry, Jeff. Uh, uh, by all means, uh, I think it speaks somewhat to the hobby too. That if you look at that that period where um, Dungeons and Dragons is coming out of chainmail and the other um, massive wargaming community that was prevalent in the 1960s, early 70s, that a lot of the people that were into this kind of literature were just designated as science fiction. There wasn't really in, in a lot of those communities. Um, a clear designation between sci-fi and fantasy. It all just kind of got lumped together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, that's why we call it sci-fi fantasy, mm-hmm. right? SFF. I like, I like the term specul- speculative fiction as, a, as like an umbrella term for, for all that stuff. Or yeah, just, which explicitly includes both science fiction and fantasy. Or just, mm-hmm. you know, genre. Genre fiction. But yeah, totally. All right, so Zaltatune is is an amazing, uh, evil, ancient, lich wizard necromancer. My 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 favorite scene is where they're they're standing outside uh, King Conan's tent, 
and uh, Zaltatune is is just trying to show off what what a, a badass he is. I, I I forget what what prompts this exchange, but he he points at some uh, poor uh, guardsman, and he says, "What what are you wearing a, 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 around your waist?" And, and the guard says, "I'm wearing a belt, sir." And Zaltatune says, "No, it's a snake, and it's a snake." The guard, oh the guard, God, th- it's a snake. <laughs> the guard thinks when you he's... cast. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I I don't remember if if the guard just like falls over dead from this from this it, illusory snake or not, but it's it's such such a great scene. He keels it, over. Whether he's dead or unconscious, I think is left ambiguous. But the belt buckle is jammed into his hand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And when, when you cast a Phantasmal Killer on a random NPC, you're definitely making a point about yourself. Phantasmal Killer <laughs> is exactly the spell I was thinking of. And probably yeah. that scene is what uh, you know, Gygax was thinking of when he came up with Phantasmal Killer. And, and, and maybe, you know, hopefully not to derail too much here, but back on, on things in D&D from this, there are so many save-or-die effects in this story. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, there's there, there's lots of dying in Conan stories, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, but they do the literal rocks fall, everyone dies at the Battle of Valkia. Yeah, right? I, like, that that trope is in there. It's amazing. I commented on some previous Conan story. I don't remember which one. That uh, you could see there's a point where Conan makes a saving throw, mm-hmm. and it that that kind of thing just happens over and over again in this story. Uh, Conan is just too uh, too high level to deal with uh, with your shit if your shit is phantasmal killers. Yeah, Conan Conan routinely demonstrates how he has an eighteen in all stats by this by this point. Uh, through, and and through, two toad. Go ahead. Through throughout this this uh, novel, um, let's let's. Move move on to I I, I really want to talk about Z- Zenobia because because here's where he really demonstrates his 18 charisma because she's in love with him before she even meets him. Oh, she uh, she saw him writing uh, when she was a child and she has loved him ever since. Which which, so she... which makes me wonder what the age difference is here. <laughs> Although, like, even even like old Conan doesn't seem like he's that old. Like he 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 seems like he's just on the cusp of forty because he's he's still huge and strong and tearing through everyone that that he meets. So like he doesn't even seem middle aged here. I don't know. I mean, I think of Batman Bruce Wayne as being like 38, 39, just because he's had so many Robins. Mm-hmm. And King Conan feels to me a few years older than that. I would, I would peg him in the mid 40s at the point of the story. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just saying like, like physically, King, King Conan doesn't seem to be any different from any other version of Conan. Like his his power has has not gotten any any less with, with, if, any, yeah, with age. if anything if anything he's larger. Yeah, I, you know, it just comes in the way people get hit in the head in this. If Conan <laughs> gets hit in the head, it rings his bell and he's unconscious until the next chapter. If Conan hits you in the head, your skull shatters <laughs> like an egg. <laughs> True, much. by the same token, uh, Conan doesn't really get knocked out very easily in previous novels. Like he is a little bit more physically frail. The only time really that he loses consciousness due to a physical blow is uh, when he's running into those pirates um, on the, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to space on the story. 
Remember they get they get we were t- we talked about it. Like yeah, how is, is, like is, is that the one right? with the, the with the island and the and the weird giants? Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, Iron but, Shadows of the Moon. I think. Yeah. yeah. But back yes. to back to Zenobia. Um, and this this novel is is full of awesome side characters that I really wish had just stuck around for another chapter or two just to have like a story arc or 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 something cuz Zenobia seems like she would have been great if well I mean if if this wasn't a pulp novel written in the 1930s <laughs> if this had been written today like she would have put on a sword and traveled with with Conan throughout this story and they would have had had an amazing uh love story with like you know a a beginning a middle and an end and and everything yeah, that would be the dramatic arc that was happening in parallel to the procedural stuff of uh, going after the heart of Ahriman. But in, instead, because this is a pulp story from the 1930s, the the best we, we can hope for with with any female character is that she shows up and you know just isn't isn't a total wet wet blanket. Uh, and I think Zenobia <laughs> Z- Z- Zenobia satisfies. She's she 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 knows weapons. She's 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 capable. I mean, she she reminds me of like that 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 girl from 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 the beer ads who you know shows up with 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 like a beer and a and a pizza. You know, she 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 knows what 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 the <laughs> you know I mean, like she 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 knows what 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 the guy likes, and she's able to 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 get it for him. She will she will. What? Polish your 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 golf clubs, and <laughs> you, you know, like. Uh, it, it, <sighs> is this a good time to go, go just into the women in this? Because well, there's got, there's two right. You've basically. got the two the two maidens and the two crones. You've got Zenobia and Albiona on the maid side, mm-hmm. and you've got Zada and Akivasha on the crone side. I forgot completely about uh, about those two, and and the the. Zalata is actually one of my favorites. I mean, I, as, as a supporting character witch, I think she's probably the best done of them. And it's also just encouraging that there actually is a female character in this that is mm-hmm. not defined by her attraction to Conan. Yeah, she has a tremendous amount of agency compared to almost everybody else in the story. And, and, and then when it comes to that, well, we'll get to that in the final showdown. We'll save that. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember the... The other two, Al- Albiona and the other crone. Albiona, Albiona is the one who he recognize, who he realizes is about to be executed, and is the reason he dresses up like Odin and breaks into his castle. Yeah. Or uh, Odysseus. Or Odysseus. That's, who, uh, that's what I was thinking of. But her only claim to fame is that she refuses to allow uh, what's his face to rape her. Um, and for that, she is put to death. Oh, now, now I remember. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember her now. Yeah, um, the, the middle of this story is is full of of lots of episodes that, that are probably really exciting on on their their own, but they they just seem to get lost in the in the larger narrative. Uh, I, I, I really wished I'd I'd had time to go back and, and listen to this uh, on on audiobook. Uh, uh, second time. Yeah, um, it all kind of blurs together. Yeah. Um, now, was, now bear with, right? Because oh, sorry. No, go 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 ahead, Peter. 
because uh, I, I didn't, go figure I'm going to be an apologist for this, right? Um, as, as we were talking earlier about how you felt like the middle part where they're just traveling a bunch was somewhat boring. Mm-hmm. For me, the recapitulation of Conan through his earlier careers is important to make him remember who he really is, right? Um, his initial uh, impulses a lot of the times in this story aren't exactly the Conan that we think where he's straight up like, I could buy this ship. Like that's that's not the Conan we're used to. The concept of I have the power and wealth to simply hand wave it and make it go away, as opposed to taking it by force and steel, is not traditionally Conan. And so for me, I think that showing him travel and then in so doing, he's you know putting on the guise of his former lives. He's really reconnecting with what makes him who he is before he regains his throne. I think that this is at a time when he's sort of. The being on the throne of Aquilonia for so long has made him such a part of civilization that it was, I don't want to say weakening his barbarian instinct, but that it was starting to have at least some sort of effect on the way that he was expecting to deal with problems. Hmm. I'll buy your ship, began Conan, before he remembered that he was a penniless wanderer. One of, yeah, one exactly. of Jeff and, Wickstrom's top 11 quotes from this from this novel yeah, I mean, adding adding that like when when you couch it in those terms, Peter, it 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 really does make his physical journey also seem like a a personal journey. Uh, it it it's it's just that Conan is is such a one note character most of the time that I I didn't really pick up on that. I guess. Yeah, even the um, even the sissified city dweller. Um, luxury spoiled king version of Conan is still a merciless killing machine. Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah. <laughs> so there's not all that much for him to uh, to come back to. I mean, there's there there's that one part where he stops at the house of is it is it Publius yes. to to like uh, yeah uh, one of one of his former allies. I I think it's it's Publius. And he he asks you know Publius for for room and board and and some help, and Publius immediately turns around and starts plotting against Conan. And mm-hmm. at that moment, I'm like, oh, Publius, you and all your allies are just gonna die now, because <laughs> because the moment you start plotting against against Conan, you know that Conan's gonna kill you. I, I and I think Publius actually lives. Because he's, I think he gets away with it, yeah. Yeah, but well, that, that, that's because Conan doesn't come back for him, right? I, yeah, I don't. I don't think Conan ever ever bothers to find out because Conan's busy. Although, again, this, this is a point where you know a flashback or some additional build up would have been nice. Amra is a great just you know name for him to have gone by as a pirate when he when he stands back up and yells out and becomes that pirate again is a great moment. And I kind of get the feeling that Publius has probably betrayed him before. Yeah, it's it's sort of a uh, like a best of Conan Conan clip show. Um, this yeah. middle portion, we're getting all of these callbacks to previous adventures, some of which we we're familiar with, many of which we're not, or yeah, that we've only heard about in passing. Really, how how best to to, to summarize the middle of this of this novel. Uh, and 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 again, like no no individual episode is is terrible. It 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 just it just seems to seems to drag on the further it it gets away from from the main uh, s- s- storyline. I mean, I I thought the vampire queen was was awesome. 
Uh, it, I, I, I believe there, there's an old uh, module where at, at the center of the dungeon you, you find, I, I, I think it's the daughter of, of, of Igwilov, even. Or, or, or something. Just, just this, just this vampire mm -hmm. queen laying on a, on a slab. So I thought, I thought she was cool. Uh, I thought the weird uh, pseudo Chinese uh, monks were were cool. They they sort of reminded yeah. me of of Nazgul the way they 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 dress in these in these black robes and they're they're relentlessly hunting our our hero. Well, this isn't the first time we've seen um, you know quasi Tibetan assassin monks. It's not the first time we've seen an ageless uh, ancient. Uh, princess whose body lies in state without decay. Yeah, you know, these are all these are all callbacks to uh, to Conan's past adventures. Yeah, but but the but the undying princess in in Jewels of Gwalur was was just a corpse, magically a uh, a magically preserved corpse. Yeah. Right. She she was not a vampire queen. As well as far as we knew in the in the text. And I, I don't remember other. She may have just been. She may have just been lying very still. I, I don't remember Tibetan assassins showing up before, but if if you do, Jeff, I I believe you. Oh, there's the whole. I mean, there's the whole thing set in uh, set in Tibet. Uh, people of the Black Circle. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. People of the Black Circle. Was that was that Tibet? Oh my! All, all these stories sort of sort of run together. Uh, they for me. they put it in the Himalayas and like you know he's running around with Afghulis. But when you look at the way that the mysticism of that cult works of the people of the Black Circle, they always say it's explicitly of the East as it has this sort of um, much more like East Asian as opposed to Eurasian or South Asian influence. And because of that, like it, it, it does kind of, I'm with you, Jeff, that it really does hearken to Tibet for me. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of think of that as what those people are like. What What, and, and what is the culture that, that these... Uh, uh, assassin monks are from. I, I thought it started with like like a Q or Kemi. something. Kemi. Kemi. K e h m i. Oh okay. well, that's a that's a city in Stygia. They're Kitan. Oh, right? okay. Kitai, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and Kitai is actually a historic term for a certain people in East Asia, but they're most closely analogous with the Han Chinese. Insofar as we know, like anything about them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also it's kind of interesting that you, you get the priests of Asura who who specifically call out that you know oh, the yeah. magic of the East is what they're using to help help Conan. Yeah, I actually I wanted to talk about uh, the the way priests are presented in this novel, mm. uh, the way churches are presented in this novel. The it's uh, more similar to the traditional Dungeons and Dragons version of a church. Yeah. Um, than what I've seen in a lot of things, because you have these churches that are, they're kind of multinational organizations, they kind of span cultures, um, they communicate with one another by, um, within themselves by, by secret means that are, that are unclear, they claim to be guided by the gods, and they have access to some kind of magic which is definitely distinct from the other kinds of magic. Mm -hmm. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot about it. Yeah, and I, I think this this is the first time we we see good priestly magic of of any kind in in a in a Conan story. Yeah, but I mean the um, 
the priests that Conan interacts with, uh, the Temple of, uh, of Secrets, mm-hmm. that, that, I mean, that could be the patriarch of Threshold, right, in terms of how he seems to interact with the world and his, uh, his sort of social, political place in it, I'm, I'm uh, which I thought was interesting. The, I'm not familiar with the Patriarch of Threshold. That's just the first uh, Dungeons and Dragons priest that came into my mind. Oh, okay. Yeah, I. But uh, sorry, I, 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 I kind of wondered if if the Assurans weren't um, Howard's uh, Jews. Like I, 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 sort of saw a bit of 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 my own people in these in these guys because because they were they were a uh, persecuted religious minority living living in in Aquilonia and people didn't really know a lot about their 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 god they 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 kind of thought that they were devil worshippers when they when they really weren't and 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 they talk about uh drawing upon eastern mysticism that's an interesting line to connect uh i hadn't thought about that but it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. and conan Conan chose not to persecute them with his aquilonian statute of religious freedom yeah because conan is fundamentally a decent guy yeah and he can tell that they have good roast beef and not human flesh (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They 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 eat beef, not 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 pork. So you know. So uh, I think, I'm, you know his. Re- I'm 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 saying right right here. Um, Assurans are Robert E. E. Howard's um, Jews. There we go. I don't see any way to mount a counter argument to that. So motion passes. Awesome. Did I did I interrupt uh, anyone? Not me. Uh, no, not particularly. I guess what I would throw in is that um, the way religion works in in the Hyborian Age, though, I think shows the biggest understanding that Robert E. Howard really did grasp how cultural diffusion works. Because if you look at where Asura is from, from Vendaya, right? And so in the people of the Black Circle, worship of Asura, that's just a thing. It's a thing people do, right? And everybody's cool about it. Like the main, the, the Devi is all about Asura. The Hyborians worship Mitra. Those areas like uh, when he goes to uh, Karaja to help out in a... Um, uh, which shall be born. They worship Mitra now, but they used to worship Ishtar and a lot of the areas around like Shem and, you know, other areas like just to the east of where the Hyborian nations are worship Ishtar. I mean, his understanding of the way that cultural diffusion works and the way that religions are going to be adopted and the further away you get from a religious heartland, the more, I guess, marginalized that particular religion is going to be is actually pretty astounding for a guy that was writing in pulp novels. Yeah, the the layering of different churches and religions uh, on top of one another, interacting with one another, is something that something that feels very, very Dungeons and Dragonsy to me um, mm-hmm. about this story in particular. Yeah, I if I it I I would draw a a parallel to 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 the fiction that. Uh, Gygax him, him himself wrote uh, much 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 uh, later, which uh, Paizo re- republished as as part of their of their planets of their planet stories line. But this the 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 world as presented here reminded me very much of uh, the world of of the the uh, Anubis murders and its and its sequels. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so uh, we've we've talked about the villain. We've we've talked about some some of the awesome side characters. We've we've talked about Conan's uh, journey. Is there is there is there any major part of this story that anyone feels uh, we need to discuss? Uh, well, here's one thing: the heart of Ariman. Um, not unreasonably, Zalatun's uh, followers begin to fear the uh, the power of this Lich King that they have summoned forth, and one of them gets the bright idea of stealing the heart of Araman and sending it away so that Zalatun will not be able to use it anymore, assuming that it's the, the source of his power. Right. And in fact, it's the opposite of the source of his power. It's the one thing that can destroy him. Um, so pitching it into a volcano uh, would be like the worst possible thing you could do with it, uh, which is a kind of an interesting reversal. Uh, because fairly early on in the story, the heart gets stolen from Zalatun by one of these, you know, incidental bad guys, and Zalatun does not really seem to care all that much. Uh, does he? Does he even realize? Because he was he was sleeping the sleep of the Black Lotus at that time. Yeah. That's a fair question. My initial assumption was that, of course, he knew he's this crazy lich king. He's going to know exactly where the heart is at all times. But uh, then they say, no, no, he, he, he is unable to perceive it with his magical sight because of the, you know, the unique way in which it is the opposite of him. He, he wanted to have the heart close to him where he could keep, where he could keep, an, keep, keep an eye on it so that, that, so that his enemies wouldn't get it. I think, I think he just assumed that... No one could could uh, get to it where 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 it was. So he just he just assumed that he was he was safe and his his hubris was his downfall. Oh, and 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 one of the one of the other interesting things about that was you know he went into that sleep of the black lotus to repower himself, and kind of as a as a light of knowledge versus darkness and oblivion. One of his weaknesses is I think they say in there he is unable to know what happens while he's in that sleep. He's completely, completely shut down. Like a, like a robot, he has to, he has to plug him himself in every, every once in a while. Basically, yeah. I mean, he's clearly being preserved by, you know, unnatural means. Um, and and when he's he's defeated at the at the end, it's 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 revealed that he that that his his fair countenance was an an illusion to 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 everyone even even him himself he was he was really an animated corpse the 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 ent- entire time and and you know talked earlier about at that end when he's overthrown i love that zalata the witch she says well he always looked that way to me mm-hmm. <laughs> she had, she's a real uh, she's kind of a gandalf figure she had uh, true true seeing Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think I think we are. We've 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 uh, talked about this. Oh my goodness. Let me let me try 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 that again. I think I think we're we're all in in agreement that uh, this story has many amazing moments and and elements and. Things for the for the Dungeons and Dragons fan to uh, chew over. Um, before we bring the show to to a close, does anyone have any final comments about the Hour of the Dragon?
Wow, we've we've said everything that there is to say about the Hour of the Dragon. There are literally no more things for us to say about this story. I, I, Pretty quick, I, yeah. About the only other thing I'd add, and, and this kind of goes to something Peter was, was talking about at one point on, on the structure of this as a campaign, I think maybe in comments before we started. There's parts of this that I think would be absolutely infuriating to a D&D party. The parts where they're just kind of, you know, they've got to find the heart, but really does kind of even know where it is. He just kind of goes south. And I think parties would, would absolutely get frustrated by that. But the ending is something every group I've ever been a part of. The part where you absolutely get to steamroll the villain. That's something that groups just love. <laughs> Nothing succeeds like success. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's 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 the it's the climactic final battle, and and Conan even has his own his own 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 army. I mean, it's 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 the battle of of Helm's Deep or or Pelennor Fields. Well, I like the way that Valerius is defeated, as near as I can tell, uh, completely without Conan's participation. Uh, just the people of Aquilonia sort of spontaneously hatch this plot to assassinate him mm-hmm. and lead him away into the wilderness and murder him. And uh, it works, it it's, works it's, well. It's Conan's 18 charisma and his, and his uh, leadership feat at, at, at work. Well, and and I, I think not- we're, we're, we're told that Valerius isn't really much of a, of a threat this, this entire time, really. Yeah, he's a, he's a pawn of other forces. It also seems it's another one of those literary inversions like you talked about with, you know, the heart. You know, this is kind of the reverse Thermopylae. The people come to him to betray him through the back, you know, way into the into his camp, but oops, it wasn't a betrayal. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's significant that he, he isn't steadfast in any way in one of the quotes um, that Jeff was talking about earlier in the podcast where, you know, he's lying on the floor drunk. That section goes on to say that he lives like a man who knows he's going to die, right? Because he knows that as soon as he's no longer convenient to Tarascus, as soon as they, you know, either are able to quell the rest of Aquilonia or he just serves his purpose, you know, he's going to die anyway. So it's a guy that doesn't seem like he is very firm in his resolve of what he's doing, but he's more of just sort of going with whatever is working at the moment. And so a guy like that, when you have, you know, when a lot of the Conan stories are about this sheer force of will and this sort of like great figure kind of thing, he's, you know, he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have this kind of random guy, Tiberius, show up and uh, offer a plot, leads Valerius away. And then you have, I would like to read Valerius's death scene aloud. It is kind of cool. Valerius struck Tiberius full in the mouth with his clenched, mailed hand. What devil's trick is this? Tiberius spat out a mouthful of blood and shook with fearful laughter. A trick that shall rid the world of a beast. Look, dog! Again, Valerius cried out, more in fury than in fear. The defile was blocked by a wild and terrible band of men who stood silent as images, ragged, shock-headed men with spears in their hands, hundreds of them. And up on the cliffs appeared other faces, thousands of faces, wild, gaunt, ferocious faces, marked by fire and steel and starvation. A trick of Conan's rage, Valerius. Conan knows nothing of it, laughed Tiberius. (coughs) It was the plot of broken men, of men you ruined and turned to beasts. Almeric was right. 
Conan has not divided his army. We are the rabble who followed him, the wolves who skulked in these hills, the homeless men, the hopeless men. This was our plan, and the priests of Asura aided us with their mist. Look at them, Valerius. Each bears the mark of your hand on his body or his heart. Look at me. You do not know me, do you? What of this scar your hangman burned upon me? Once you knew me. Once I was the lord of Amillus, the man whose sons you murdered, whose daughter your mercenaries ravaged and slew. You said I would not sacrifice myself to trap you? Almighty gods, if I had a thousand lives, I would give them all to buy your doom. And I have bought it. Look on the men you broke, dead man who once played king. Their hour has come. This gorge is your tomb. Try to climb the cliffs. They are steep. They are high. Try to fight your way back through the defile. Spears will block your path. Boulders will crush you from above. Dog, I will be waiting for you in hell. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good uh, soliloquy. I I, I, I I like how you how you put the coffin in in there. You know, because yeah. he, he had his you know face punched in, so he would be coughing. It's been a long day, man. <laughs> Okay. Talk about a great, great name for a campaign there, the Broken Men. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Uh, sadly, uh, everyone, uh, I I know we could we could keep on talking about this uh, tale, but we must bring this episode to a close. Peter, would you like to tell everyone where on the web can people find you? Uh, yeah, I can. I have a blog called Crom Count the Dead which uh, on the 7th of January is actually going to be doing uh, daily, Monday through Friday. Uh, most of those days giving you guys something that you can directly drop into your campaign, usually catered to either 5e or uh, First Ed. So, And hopefully this episode will be out before the 7th of January, although that seems unlikely at this point. Um, and Jeff, what's new over at jeffwick.com? Oh, the things that are new. So many things. Since I have no idea when this is going up, I really I can't say. But uh, once upon a time, there were great and new things over there. So check it out sometime, perhaps. There's always something to check out at jeffwick.com. So why not head there today? Yeah, feel free. Yes, free. Free like Conan, who goes where he wishes and does what he wants. And with that mighty declaration, listeners, we come to the close of another episode of the Appendix N Podcast. If you have any thoughts or comments, questions or concerns about anything said on this program, please send an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line so that it gets forwarded to me. If you've read a book by any of the Appendix N authors that we did not cover on the show and would like to submit a short review or commentary, we would welcome your input. Our very next episode will be part one of our discussion of a little tale known as The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is my favorite author, and we're not doing this halfway. I really wanted to do something special and, and different, so The Hobbit will be broken up into three episodes, and each portion of the novel will be paired with another short story, or in one case, an essay by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, my hope is that these pairings make our discussions a little more interesting, sort of like uh, pairing wine and chocolate. The first part will be chapters 1 through 6 of The Hobbit, paired with the short story Rover Random. The second part will be chapters 7 through 11, paired with the essay on fairy stories. And the third part will be chapters 12 through 19, 
paired with the short story Farmer Giles of Ham. Rover Random, Unfairy Stories, and Farmer Giles of Ham can all be found in a very excellent hardcover collection called Tales of the Perilous Realm. Pick it up today. They have also been published in various other collections, so check Amazon.com or your favorite, favorite local bookstore. And if you do use Amazon.com, be sure to use the Tome Show's Amazon store on their website, thetomeshow.com. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 28, The Hour of the Dragon, by Robert E. Howard. Thanks for listening. We're friends. We're friends. Out.